sorry I don't love you A fresh I've grown accustomed to Cause with you if something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, and we have a brand new guest today. We're talking all about Solo, a Star Wars story with Katie Schaefer. Katie, would you like to introduce yourself since it is your first time on the podcast? Sure. I've been writing movie movie and film pieces for quite some time, but I've been getting published with Substream for a little over a year now. I like all kinds of film, and I watch a huge variety from bad movies to superheroes to crazy 70s, 60s art films. So, and I'm super excited to talk to you about Solo. I've been a huge Star Wars fan my whole life, so I am. I really look forward to it. Yeah, see, I got into Star Wars a lot more recently. I had watched, you know, the initial six films, and when they had the announcement that The Force Awakens was going to be coming out and they were going to basically be reviving the Star Wars universe in a sense... I was like, okay, let me go back and I'll just watch the original trilogy. And then I really just got sucked in from there. So, you know, I do not mind all of the Star Wars content lately, especially the books and comics, because I am also a nerd about those things. But I wouldn't consider myself a Star Wars expert by any means. Sometimes I'm still like, wait, what what planet? did this happen on what where are we going what's happening so you know i dive in but i am by no means you know the best person to ask specific facts about the star wars universe so i'm very glad that you are on to discuss star we're solo today wow well and star wars you know same thing here we go right all one big happy family <laughs> exactly I've been watching the movies since I was very small. My parents are huge Star Wars and Star Trek nerds, so they introduced me to it. And um, I've watched the movies I don't know how many times, and I got my niece into it and my son. And so it's kind of a, it's a big thing, but I only got into the exterior universe a little bit, but I know the films really, really well. Well, good news. I have only covered the recent films, so we'll probably have you back on to cover something in the original trilogy, if not the whole original trilogy. Who knows? Although we will definitely split that up into three episodes. I would not sit down and discuss the entire trilogy in one episode. We'd be here for a long time. (laughs) That's just too much, and I would love that. Um, So you saw Solo, and what did what were your initial thoughts? Because my my feelings on it really developed as I sat and thought about it from after I left the theater. You know, going into it, I had heard mixed reviews from critics and whatnot, and I knew that it wasn't doing super well in theaters. Like when I went, there were four other people in the theater and that was it, which Ooh. I kind of like that because then I don't really have to be annoyed by people making a bunch of noise during a movie. That's so, true. you know, I don't mind that as much but I know it's not great for the movies especially since I saw week two or three that it was out it's not like it had been out for over a month or something and it was that empty but you know I sort of just didn't give myself too many expectations going into it because for me Star Wars it's something that I've enjoyed to varying degrees you know there have been some of the books that I haven't liked as much as others and then I've for the most part, really enjoyed the new movies. So going into this, I was like, you know what? If I enjoy it, great. If not, I used MoviePass. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> so, right. you know, I, I did have fun with it, though. So it was sort of just a relief to 
not be a Star Wars nerd to the extent that I know other fans can be, because I feel like that allows me to sort of just sit back and and enjoy things a little more than some of the really big hardcore fans. Right. I can totally see that. It's a, it's, and you know, if you follow film Twitter, it's such a complicated thing to be a Star Wars fan these days. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I went into it with pretty much the same attitude, even with my lifelong love. Like I was like, you know, this is going to be a really hard shot to make. Like not um, to make a, you know, bad joke, not unlike the Kessel Run. Like, you're going to have to pull it off really, really well in order to hit that sweet spot for fans and people who, you know, aren't huge Star Wars nerds. And I thought, you know, they did um, they did a decent job, but I think, I don't know that it would have ever made anybody or everybody happy. Plus, The Last Jedi didn't even make everyone happy. So it's just one of those things where <laughs> I think people are just going to have to accept that there are going to be Star Wars decisions that they don't like and others that are perfectly fine and line up with what those fans like but we could probably go down a very big rabbit hole if we continue talking about the online fandom of Star Wars right so so why don't we go ahead and just dive on in and talk about the casting because like you said this movie it, it was difficult because you have someone else playing Han Solo and all we've known is Harrison Ford as Han Solo. And it's one of those things where to me, it feels a little similar to having to follow up like Heath Ledger's Joker performance. To me, it's like, okay, that's the Joker for the live action movies. And, you know, Mark Hamill is the Joker for the animated series. And you have those two very great depictions of the Joker. And it's like, are you really expecting anyone to ever stand up to those performances, basically? And for me, the answer is probably no. So I wasn't expecting this to be like, oh, this guy reminds me exactly of Harrison Ford playing Han Solo, because that, that that's not a thing that's going to happen. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I, I totally agree. I think that, and it, it would be if Heath Ledger had played the Joker in like six movies. And had, like, started his career out playing. Like, Harrison Ford and Han Solo are so intertwined in people's minds that it's going to be almost impossible for you to get out from under that unless you make some really conscious decisions and play it your own way. And I think, you know, I think he looks the part. I think Alan Ehrenreich looks perfect for a younger Solo, as close as you can get to Harrison Ford. Yeah, I think they definitely did everything they could to have this really look and feel like a Star Wars movie with Han Solo and Lando and all of the other characters. And, you know, Donald Glover is another person that we will definitely be talking about throughout this episode. But then you have Amelia Clark as Kira, Woody Harrelson as Beckett, and you have, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge voicing L3. Oh, that was such a choice. <laughs> yeah, and then you have Paul Bettany as Dryden Voss. You have all of these familiar faces in this movie that I think help sort of bolster the fact that, you know, okay, Alden Ehrenreich is no Harrison Ford, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. I didn't I didn't need him to be Harrison Ford. Yeah. Because the Han Solo we're seeing isn't the Han Solo from the movies that we saw. Like that Han Solo is ten to fifteen years older than this guy and He's 
obviously gone through some really big life changes since then and done some crazy things. So he's going to be a different person and it's okay. It's also, it's a movie. I'm happy to see a new iteration and see how well they can pull it off. I do want to point out too, that the reason this movie looked like it wasn't doing well in the, at the box office is because of how much of it they had to redo to an extent once, you know, you had the firings and everything like that. So it's not, okay. It's not even really the fault of the actors for this movie not being a hit in the theaters. It's like, okay, that decision was not theirs, and they ended up having to do extra work. So, of course, you know, everyone's going to have to get paid for all of that extra work, and it's going to increase the budget a ton. And I think the casual fan might not realize that if they don't keep up, you know, with like the business side of movie news and everything like that. So just looking at the numbers, you're like, oh, that's not great. But when you sort of put it into context, you're like, oh, well, that's why. <laughs> right. That's very true. Like I, I, uh, I heard, I heard about it and was like, that seems weird. That movie was not a $200 million movie and they're going to hit like it's silly to talk about a movie making over a hundred million dollars and still it's not a success or you know whatever it's still like you make in the tens and millions of dollars your movie is a success that's a big deal you know just because it's not a force awakens or whatever it doesn't mean that it's not a successful or good movie and i think there are these high expectations because of what star wars is and i don't think that it would be necessarily considered such a you know, or be looked at like it's not succeeding um, without what you said, like the budgets and the reshoots and how it got so much because of those are the costs of making movies. Yeah, Hollywood is just weird in general. I was actually reading an article earlier today about the DC movies and it was like, yeah, Justice League was a failure, but it made over $600 million. I was like, well, if you think $600 million is a failure, please give me the money. I'll take it. (laughs) I will take it. I will take half that. You can keep the other half. I would take like 1% of that and literally be fine. (laughs) And I think that's, and with Justice League, it's the same thing. Like, and that movie was, you know, it's a failure in some ways, but that doesn't, like money isn't what constitutes success, but it does on some levels. Like the enjoyability of a movie can't be judged by how much money is spent or earned. Right. But it, the money is what a certain section of Hollywood cares about. And that's how we decide. That's how it's decided whether or not we get more of a thing. So, yeah, exactly. So one of the things I want to talk about here, because it's a big part of the movie, is when Han and Chewie initially meet. Because for me, you know, I think I was like, okay, you know, this could go a lot of different ways. But I think the way it went was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. (laughs) I totally agree. That for me was the most important relationship in that whole movie. Like the love story that's going on took such a backseat to the friendship that's developing between the two of them and how natural it was. And I thought those two had the best chemistry in the film. I mean, sure. You can't really see a whole lot of facial movement, but I think the actor who took over from um, the original Chewbacca actor, whose name is escaping me right now, Peter Mayhew um, did a fantastic job. Like he still comes off like the same Wookiee. Yeah. And you have, Han trying to speak to him in what is it called? I believe it's Shuriwook. 
I might be yes. pronouncing that yep. incorrectly. I feel like I pronounce all of the Star Wars words incorrectly anyway. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. That. It's just made up. So, you know, he was speaking in Chewie's language and <laughs> that provides enough comedy for me in that moment. I'm like, yeah, of, of course he would know some words, but they wouldn't really make sense. And I love how they give us the translation for Han, but not for Chewie, because it's like, yep, it's Chewie is acted so well that you don't really need to ever know what Chewie is saying. And I think that's part of what has made that character so likable over the years. Yeah, and I think the um, the contrast between how like soft and fuzzy and lovable he is, and yet how you know he's still this very dangerous creature is works so to his benefit because it also allows him to do a lot of nuance with the vocal intonations and the little facial movement they give him and the arms and his body language and it becomes like a character that you know is my son he was my son's favorite for a while when he was little yeah it's just one of those things where they either nail it or they don't and I'm really glad that they got that nailed down and fairly early on in the movie too you know we start out with this sort of big grungy war scene and then it it sort of quickly changes pace after that you know once he's thrown down there with Chewie it's like okay here we go this is sort of where everything is coming together and we're going to see how Han and Chewie wind up sticking by each other's sides for so long and it was just a really well done storyline but I yeah. do I do want to touch on Lando and L3 here, too, because I think that's another relationship that might not have been as expected as Han and Chewie's, but still nope. had that's some sort of importance to the story. Well, the one more thing about the Han and Chewie, I think that that initial scene between them is so powerful and gives you like a it gives them a bond that makes it so reasonable that like everything else that comes afterwards like oh okay this all makes sense this you know willing to sacrifice themselves for each other is okay you believe it becomes believable and i think that also ties in with lando and l3 like at first it seems very odd that the two of them are you know in a ship together but as we learn more about their relationship it all becomes very natural and it seems so unaffected between Donald Glover and the robot essentially. Yeah and we have that scene when L3 basically starts this droid rebellion and oh, there so <laughs> yeah and you see what Lando risks just to get L3 out of there and even though things do not go so well for L3 in the end, she still becomes part of the ship. And I think that's ultimately what makes that such a sort of touching relationship, even though it's between a person and a robot. I mean, they still find a way to make you care about this relationship. Right. And the conversations, like I thought L3 was such an advancement of the droids as, you know, a species as it were and like her conversation about Lando with um Kira is funny and kind of shocking and for a minute you sit there thinking like does she she really oh oh okay <laughs> and you 
and like all of the talk you hear about the pansexuality of Lando and stuff, like all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, this is what they meant by that. I see. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And it's one of those things where, you know, Star Wars always has some sort of comedic relief, even in the most dire of situations. And L3 provided a good amount of that, even though she wasn't on screen too terribly long. Like when we first see the droid, she is basically attacking people for fighting droids again, again, like in a, you know, I don't, I forget what the name of the show is, but it's like the battle of the robot show. And it it was like that. And, you know, Lando literally has to like get her out of there before she causes too much of a scene. And the amount of leaving now, you have to escort her out of it. Yeah, and the amount of personality that they gave the droid, it was similar to what they did with K2SO in Rogue One, but it was still so different. Right? It feels more developed. It feels less like a like a fun gimmick, like meant to entice the children in the audience almost. This felt, I think a, that makes me think that like Solo is somewhere in between like the typical like tone of a Star Wars film that's usually not too dark and then rogue one which did go pretty dark considering the end and this one feels a little more in the middle with the grunginess and you know they're these are criminals doing their doing their fun criminal things and l3 felt like a a good exploration of that because she's you know she's essentially like a militant and that i thought was such a great choice to make for her right Plus, with Lando, you know, the way that Donald Glover portrayed the character felt like a very good fit. You know, it's like we could imagine this just being Lando from the other movies and his obsession with his capes was perfect, too. I really enjoyed that. It's like, yes, this is exactly what we would expect from Lando. The cape closet, when they go in that cape closet, I was like, this is correct. This is how these things should be. And I think... um, do you know the quote about what, when asked how he portrayed Lando, what Billy D. Williams said? I do think I saw that floating around. I don't remember what it was exactly, though. It's, um, he looked at it as he was just a brother in space doing his thing. Yeah. And that was very much how I felt Donald Glover approached the role. At least, I don't know if it was. I haven't read an interview where he said that specifically. But that's what it felt like. Like he was just being, um, you know, this idea of a spacefaring, you know, brother doing what he wanted to do. And it felt very natural um, and only a little inspired by Billy D. Williams' character. Yeah. And I want to quickly touch on Kira and Dryden Voss here because, you know, Dryden Voss felt like a very typical villain and we didn't see him too terribly much, but it was more so his relationship with Kira that sort of took over the storyline because you have her killing him and then, you know, Obviously, spoilers if you're already listening this far, but (laughs) I was wondering if you'd get to talk about this. This was like the most interesting part of these were some of the most interesting choices they made in the movie this end scene here yeah and then she calls up darth maul and i'm like uh wait what hello explanation please so you know they sort of leave these loose ends that you know they are probably going to return to whether or not that ends up being in a solo sequel or just in some other way in a different movie down the line it'll be interesting to see because 
that's something you're like, okay, Crimson Dawn, obviously Crimson Red. Okay, this this is starting to make sense. And then you see yep. Darth Maul and you're like, oh, no, they have to do some explaining here at some point. Right. And I felt like that was like, I was very conflicted when I saw that because part of it is both good and bad. The idea of going and tying in this story to all the other stories. It's both a very Star Wars thing to do because it does do its best to try to feel like a uh, a complete universe, like everything interlaces with itself, like our own universe. But sometimes it comes across as very like fan servicey. And so I felt both in that instance. I was like, okay, this is an interesting choice to make, but why did you make it? Because for some reason that matters to me. Yeah, and we obviously know where Han and Chewie end up down the line. So, you know, you wouldn't even necessarily need to have the two of them in the story to finish off that portion of it somewhere down the line. And I think they did that for a reason, too, because, you know, Kira goes and she takes the ship and she leaves by herself. Right. So you're kind of like, okay, well, clearly, you know her and Han are over until they find each other again four years later, whatever it is. And, you know, they have a lot of the, not a lot, but they have a few of these things that they can explore without Han and Chewie, because then you have Enfys Ness too. And, you know, she yes. asks Han to join her rebellion, basically. And he's like, no, not really my thing. And, yep. you know, that right there is just funny in itself because you're like yeah but you end up there anyway so you know you do you right. for now Han <laughs> yep you're destined to it go get your skills together and then we'll see you in a little while you you'll be back and I I liked how like I said like I felt so conflicted about it but a big part of me really liked that they gave um Kira her own thing her own story and uh her own motivation that was never about Han I thought that was a good choice, but it wasn't really an obvious choice at first, which right. isn't a bad thing, but it definitely, you have to think about it to really see it, I think. I think it helps that she sort of always had this idea that she wouldn't be able to leave too, because Han kept trying to convince her to just leave. And she's like, you really don't understand, dude. <laughs> like, that's not right? a thing that's going to happen. So it was really nice to see how, you know, she already knew sort of what was going to happen. But then as things progressed and she ended up stabbing Dryden, it's like, okay, now what does she do? Because obviously she's lying about what happened. So if she ever gets caught in a lie, this is not going to end well for her. But if she doesn't, right. where, like, where what side is she on? Is she on the good side, the evil side? You know, what's what's going on with her character? And I think she's a really interesting addition to along with Enfys Nest and Beckett. And, you know, I have talked about this on a previous podcast before, but with, you know, this isn't exactly a superhero movie, but I feel like it still gets lumped in with Marvel and DC when you're talking about these big blockbuster movies that a lot of people will go see. They're not just labeled as, you know, like this space opera or superhero movie. For me, you know, Solo was pretty much a heist movie. That's yeah, that's the whole goal of this movie. It's like, okay, they have to go steal this stuff that is very dangerous and very explosive and get it to someone, 
And, you know, there's a buyer, there's a seller and what have you. And none of that happens, but they still end up stealing the thing. So, you know, it's just a big heist movie. And I feel like for a heist movie, this was a good heist movie. I agree. I thought that was the best parts of it. When you're watching the heist happen and the planning and all of that and uh, the original crew, you know, Beckett's crew that he gets with and Tandy Newton was amazing. And I, I would have loved to see more of her in this film. But I think when it was being a heist film, it really knew its strengths and it pushes those and it makes it, uh, it's the most thrills that you get in the whole movie other than maybe um, at that very end scene when they're, you know, actually, well, I suppose that is, that's the culmination where the heist goes bad almost essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I know you wanted to talk about betrayal as a theme in this movie. And I feel like with a heist movie, betrayal is, highly likely too because you have such high stakes especially with what they were going after and I'm totally blanking on the name of it at the moment but it was very rare and very hard to get so they only had this one shot to get it and then they sort of butcher that and have to figure something else out and have to get it in an even more unstable condition and then stabilize it and it's just this whole big ordeal because of these people coming in and betrayal after betrayal. And what did you think of the moment where Han did shoot first? I want to be sure we get to that. So we'll we'll come back to the betrayal thing in a moment because this kind of ties into it too. I think that was, um, that was a huge growth moment for Han. I think that is where we start to see Han turning into uh, the person he becomes, where he has um, digested the lesson that, you know, Harrelson's character is trying to teach him to never trust anyone. I think he he learns it then and he finds it and takes it into himself and allows it to change him. And I thought that moment was uh, just one of the strongest choices he makes in the film. I was like, yes, this is what you do. He would have killed you. There was no doubt. Plus Beckett even tells him that. He's like, I, I would have pulled the trigger sort of thing too. Yep. So he's like, good, good for you. And you know, like you said, it's this big growth moment for him. And it's sort of really hard to do that to someone he looked up to for a period of time, no matter how short of a period of time it was in the movie. It's like he was like, okay, this guy, I'm going to do this one job. And then it turned into, you know what, maybe I could do this some more because they even go back to that at the end. And he's like, you know, there's this gangster. <laughs> and yep. then, you know, the, yep. the movie ends shortly thereafter. And you're like, okay, obviously we know where Han and Chewie are, are going next. And there's sort of this underlying theme in Star Wars where killing your mentor is a thing you tend to do or try to do at least so I thought to have it be Han and Beckett instead of you know like Jedi or Sith or what have you it just made it feel a little more real because you're like okay these are just two dudes trying to get by they're not you know Jedi or Sith they don't have any powers they're just dudes with blasters (laughs) right and they I think it cements the concept for the for their among the many rerunning themes in, in Star Wars. It cements this idea that in order for growth to happen, like there must be death. And I think that particular scene, because like you said, they're not Jedi, they're not Sith. And it's, 
not even really about good or evil at that point. It's just he just wants to get away. And neither of them is necessarily good or evil. They're complex men, but they still have to live out this same message and learn it in order to move on and make, you know, growth in their lives. Well, Han gets to grow. Becca gets to die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, that sort of brings us into the various deaths for the movie, too. So you have Beckett. You mentioned Val. We didn't get to see a whole lot of her because she dies during the initial heist attempt. And she sacrifices herself so that they can pull off the heist, which doesn't even happen. So then you just get this feeling in your gut. You're like, oh, she pretty much died for nothing. But, you know, at least yep. she died doing what she loved, kind of, sort of. I mean, you know, you could have just saved her because you didn't get the stuff anyway. Yeah, and that was a really, like, it was a moment where it was like, no, Tandy Newton, she's so great. I love this character. It's such an opportunity for her and a, such a, someone you want to see more of and then it's cut short and it feels like, I think I kind of fit, when, I, when that happened, I was like, oh, this is going to be a hard movie. All these people are going to die. Because it, it kind of foreshadows it because if she's dying, who's like his closest confidant, then who's going to make it out alive? Exactly. That moment, too, reminded me of Daredevil season one when they kill off Ben Yurick. And it feels like it's way too soon. I'm like, hold up. What are you doing? Why are you killing him? And you sort of miss his presence after that because you know he was such a great reporter and you're like okay yeah sure karen's great sometimes but you know she's no ben Yurick, and it, it sort of felt like that for me because i was like oh i think they did this a little too soon right and is it is it a purposeful choice because or was it just like eh, we'll just somebody's gotta die let's pick her and it in this it kind of felt purposeful just because it, more so because uh you know, Kasdan wrote it and he's a pretty purposeful writer, but also because that's kind of the thing that Star Wars does. Like they allow people to die and it is hard, but it motivates the other characters. And it certainly, I felt like I, agree, I totally agree with you about how um, you feel like they're missing because you know, those heists would have gone way better if she'd been there. Right. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you're like, okay, you know, I can understand how this decision could have easily gone either way. And you have to pick one. You know, she can't be half dead and half alive. <laughs> you know, it's it's not right. a halfway thing that you can do. You either do it all the way or not at all. And, you know, I understand the choice. I was just sort of hoping to get to know her a little more. We do have that nice moment when they're sort of all sitting around talking and sort of getting to know each other. But other than that, you're like, okay, how much do we really know about this character? And who knows? For all we know, she could show up in one of the novels, like we've seen happen with a lot of other secondary characters for specific stories. Because, you know, I recently read Thrawn by Timothy Zahn, and it had Governor Price. And, you know, the two of them show up in the Rebels show. So I was like, okay, I'm familiar with these characters. But it was really nice to sort of see that history and how those two ended up meeting, even though Price wasn't necessarily as important of a person as Thrawn by any means. So maybe we'll see something like that down the line. But with her and Beckett dead, I'm not entirely sure how that would happen. Yeah, that kind of it cuts off so many avenues and it kind of feels feels very it makes it more sad because it's such a waste like oh this was such a cool person and now they're just gone and it's 
in keeping with the fairly bleak sentiments of the beginning of the movie, you know, that it with even with that first initial scene where Han just has to leave her behind, Kira just gets to stay there and then we see what happened to her and it's a this one felt like it it was willing to embrace the darkness just a little bit and show a little more um of the sad realities of what living in that kind of universe would be. Yeah, Val wasn't the only one to die during that heist though either. You have Rio, I believe. Yes. And yeah. you know, he is up in the ship trying to help them get away with everything and you know, they the other people board the ship and he ends up getting shot and you know, you see Han go up there and you can just tell right away once you see Rio, you're like, nope, this is not ending well. Nope. No, people that guy is not getting not coming back. He's not uh not do not gonna make it and it's and you kind of watch the realization come onto Han's face and he's like, Oh, it'll be okay. Oh, he's not gonna be okay. And you watch him go through this like he's watching somebody die as he has to save people. And I felt like Aaron Reich did a really good job with that moment. Cause you you really felt how hard it must be to watch something like this while you're in a life and death situation. Exactly. I have one other question I want to ask you about Han. How did you feel about his overall positivity that things were going to work out? You know, when we first are on Corellia and he's like, I'll find you. And even though it takes so long, he does by accident, though. And, you know, then he's like, oh, OK, well, let's just get out of here. You know, he's sort of naive in a sense because he hasn't experienced all of the things that he has by the time we see A New Hope or any of the other movies in the original trilogy. And you're just like, oh, this is a very different Han than we're used to. But you still see glimpses of the same person. It's like, you know, he still has that same kind of charming personality and he's going to be up for whatever, basically. Yeah, I think, I mean, even in the beginning, he feels a little goofy almost, which is something that's so very far from like the cool cucumber Han Solo who knows how to get out of everything that, you know, we see in New Hope. I think at the beginning, I was like, what are we doing? Is this, how are they going to turn this kid into, you know, the character that he becomes. And I didn't, I was curious if they would be able to make that, thread that needle, as it were. And slowly throughout the film, he, he changes a little bit, not much. But then at the very end, after the Kessel Run and stuff, when he is betrayed, he has to deal with, you know, his mentor trying to kill him. And he has to kill the guy. And now he's got to figure it out. It's a, hell of a transformation at the end and i think they they made it work they made it seem more sensible and it felt like he lost a little bit of that like naivety and that goofy swagger that he has and starts to develop more of a like cocky swagger to hide the internal conflict we do see him start to figure out how to talk his way out of things too because we see that when they come back to Dryden empty-handed and he just starts talking and sort of looking to Beckett and Kira and having them help him out along the way but he does end up talking Dryden out of killing all of them pretty much right and i thought and then he manages to keep all of the attention on him and almost and pull off almost everything they wanted. And I think, you know, he does that 
in the very beginning when he, you know, makes it off the planet with the coaxium. That's what it's called. Yes, I know. He's not very good at it in the beginning, and you see him get better at it. And I thought that last scene where he does talk Beckett out of it, or not Beckett, he talks Dryden out of it, um, it was like, it felt like a test. It was like, all right, buddy, if you want to make every, if you want to get everybody out alive, you're going to have to use these skills that you've learned from, you know, playing Sabak with Lando and dealing with Kira in this entirely new way and dealing with these mercenaries. And it was a, a cool growth moment for him as well. Like the ending of that movie is just all him growing up, essentially. Yeah. And like I said at the top of the episode, you know, I went into this not really having a ton of expectations for it. And while it is a fun movie, I don't know if fun necessarily makes a movie great either. I think, you know, by the time I walked out of the theater, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that was a perfectly fine movie. I think I gave it like a three out of five on Letterboxd, which to me, you know, a three out of five, that's fine. It's not horrible. Yeah. It's not fantastic. And I was like, yeah, that that seems right. And, you know, talking about it now, I think Solo might be something I would rewatch just for the heist aspect of it. Like I really enjoy heist movies. I still need to go see Ocean's 8, speaking of heist movies, but (laughs) it's one of those things where sometimes you can just sit back and have fun with movies like that. It's, you know, like I said, the Ocean series, Baby Driver, what have you. It's just like, okay, you know, heist movies, maybe not going to be five stars out of five stars ever, but you're going to have fun while you're watching them. And I think sometimes, you know, that's okay. And because you and I both write about movies, it's like, sometimes you just want to sit back and enjoy a movie without feeling like you have to be overly critical about it. Right. And so engaged and like looking at it on all these levels, like you can, and Solo is nice in that, and that you can look back on it. And like, okay, well, there was a lot kind of going on there. And I think they made a good choice when they tapped Ron Howard to pick that because Ron Howard, like, he's made some okay movies and he's made some really great movies, but I can't think of one that's just, like, truly terrible. Like, And in all of his movies, there's moments of greatness. And I think there, this was definitely a Ron Howard movie. And I, I liked that about it. And I walked out feeling the same. I was like, that was fine. That was fine. I didn't feel I was engaged the whole time. Had some fun, had some laughs, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't moved. But I I do now sit back and think about it and have some stuff to ponder. And that is, you know, that's saying something for what it is, I think. Yeah, there's one big section of the movie that we haven't talked about just yet, and that's the Kessel Run. So I was sort of saving this as one of the last things because this is the moment where you know, we get to see Han take over and pilot the Millennium Falcon. And then Chewie ends up jumping into the co-pilot seat when Kira's like, yep, no, I don't know where any of the stuff you're asking for is. So she just gets up and she's like, Chewie, here you go. And it's just one of those moments where we knew this was going to happen at some point. And they didn't make a really, really big deal about it. You you sort of see this smirk on Han's face when he gets to pilot. And then, you know, Chewie is just so chewy in that moment that he hops into the seat and he just like starts doing everything. And you have the moment where Han learns that Chewie is 190 in the movie too, which yes. I think that was a great moment between the two of them. Yes, I agree. I think that was also a... I felt like, okay, there's no surprises coming in this. 
Like, we know he makes it. We know he does a great job at it. But it was, so, I didn't really feel like there was any climactic energy to it, even though that's obviously kind of what it was, it was trying to send that message, even though the real climax comes afterwards. Um, But I, it was fun to watch and fun to see it all play out as he, they become, like, partners, like, true partners as they learn how to manipulate this ship through this incredibly dangerous journey. So I was captivated by it, even though I was like, well, I know what happens, but I still want to see this. Yeah, the Kessel Run is something that we have known about for a very long time at this point. And, you know, I was a little worried that it might feel like shoehorned into the movie, but it didn't. It made total sense. I was like, oh, yeah, of course, this is what it is. You know, of course, it's the first time that he pilots the ship. It's like it sort of all just fell into place with what you would expect from Han Solo. And, you know, by the time they get to where they're going, the Falcon is so trashed that you could tell (laughs) that once Han takes it from Lando, which obviously happens later because we see Lando leave in it. Right. And, you know, it's just this beautiful, beautiful ship when Lando shows them around and they're going around going to the cape room and this that and the other thing but you know when Han has it you're like oh that piece of junk <laughs> and you yes. know that's even been said in other Star Wars movies so it's just so funny how we see it in this pristine condition and then you know when Han takes it over it's like yeah no I don't really need all of this fancy stuff so we're just gonna beat the crap out of the ship <laughs> right and he just has no care it's it's a tool to him. He has got places to go. No time to, you know, be safe about it. And that was, that was so fun to watch. I was like, I wonder what happened when I saw how like clean and beautiful it looks. I'm like, how long did it take for it to get so dingy? And then you learn about two days. Yeah. If, if that it's like one time Han flies it and it's done for. (laughs) Yep. And yet he somehow manages to keep it going for quite some time. Yeah, I think that might be the more impressive part that it actually still works for Ray in The Force Awakens. Right? Especially when you see how it looks there. It's like, how is this ship still going? This is insane. Like, they must make things, considering the rapid rate of technological, you know, decline in our, in our society where your phone lasts a year and a half and then it's dead. It's like, they're really building stuff to last there. Yeah, exactly. And while Han is piloting too, that is when we have L3 being uploaded into the ship, basically, and she becomes the Siri of the ship, so to speak. And, you know, does that make the death of L3's physical droid form a little less painful for you? Because, you know, you see how much it affects Lando and you're like, okay, well, you know, she's still part of the ship. So I think that eases up the pain a little bit especially for Lando because it's like okay you know she's still there technically yeah I felt like I felt like it made more sense how the ship was so amazingly good at getting through places and and why it's so persnickety about things throughout the entire series so I was I was like okay this is this is a good choice and then I read an article about it about the um how removing her brain from her body and then putting it in the ship has, you know, taken all of her agency away. And it made me think about it slightly differently. I was like, how do I feel about this? And 
I still don't know, but I thought it was an interesting point that, you know, she's such a independent droid and she's fighting for freedom, but then she has that choice taken away from her at the end, but it saves Lando. So would she choose that for herself or so it's an ethical question that I, I'm sure the movie didn't consider, but it's certainly fun to think about. Definitely. Well, is there anything we haven't touched on yet that you want to hit on before we start to wrap things up here? I don't think so. I think we got through most of the stuff that was on my mind about the movie. Yeah, me too. And because I saw it fairly recently, I'm I'm pretty confident we got through all of the big things here. And like I said, it'll be interesting to see if they pick up the Darth Maul and Kira storyline somewhere else or, you know, what ends up happening. Because I think they signed on for three movies. I think I read that somewhere, but it doesn't necessarily say they have to be a solo trilogy. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And as you and I both know, Hollywood is very weird, so anything can happen at any given time. Yeah, and they have talked about making a Lando movie, and that I would go see no matter how bad it is, just to watch <laughs> Donald Glover do his amazing skills on screen again. Um, but that would be interesting, and I would definitely watch a movie about Kira. She seems like a, I mean, an utterly fascinating character. And it probably wouldn't be a bad thing to necessarily have a female-led movie. Just saying, Star Wars. No, you know, I could, I could handle five, six, seven more of those. That'd be great in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> it might be about par then. Exactly. Well, Katie, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Solo. We will definitely have you back on for more Star Wars and other movie talk. I'm sure you and I will be brainstorming pretty shortly after we're done here about what awesome. we'll talk that about sounds- next. Sweet. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. It was fun. Of course. And as always, thank you to our listeners and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.